Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Welcome to episode 505 with my guest Ben Feynman. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. You name it. There's there's nothing I don't think that we have not touched on in the 505 episodes that we've done on this podcast. And if there isn't, when you fill out a survey, let us know something you'd... Uh, actually, now that I think of it, there are things that we haven't touched on. We haven't talked about alien abductions. We haven't talked about uh, somebody witnessing the second coming of Jesus. We, oh boy, am I going down a rabbit hole. I am so into the HBO documentary, The Vow. Holy shit, I cannot wait for each week's episode. Why, why is it so comforting to watch People who have no morals, whether it's in a drama or it's in nonfiction, there's something so comforting about it. I, I think I, maybe I've touched on that before that it, because I'm so used to thinking about myself that when I see somebody who has no morals, it makes me feel like a good guy. And then that part of my brain can be quiet for an hour and a half because I can feel morally superior to them and feel grateful that I'm not causing the kind of wreckage that they're causing. But it's such a fascinating documentary because the guy who is the head of this cult, he he is so brilliant at taking universal truths and then twisting them and using our worst fears to get people to do the opposite of what is healthy. For instance, one of the things that he says to somebody is hell 
is on the last day of your life meeting the person that you could have been, which is such a backdoor way of making people feel like not enough. And, you know, not that the concept of who do we have the potential to be isn't something that, that we should be aware of, but holding that over somebody as if your life is a failure if you don't accomplish that. You know, there was a psychologist whose name escapes me who years ago said that every one of us have an idealized version of ourselves that we will never be able to meet. And this guy is using that against people, getting them to work ridiculous hours for him, getting them to put up with sexual abuse and just all kinds of horrific shit. But it's and he's such a calm character, but he gave me the creeps almost almost out of the gate. I'm going to read a couple of surveys before we get to the interview with, with Ben. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Lieutenant Dan. He writes, for context, I wanted to kill myself two months ago, and it's been a slog getting out of that place in my mind. I was drinking and self-harming daily. Flash forward to this past weekend, I was on my last night of a solo camping trip to escape the chaos, and seemingly nothing was going right. I tried to change my campsite and canceled my reservation, and the process effectively paid for my spot twice. I call this the idiot tax. It happens more than I care to admit. And it was forecasted to rain on a night I planned to spend stargazing in a dark sky reserve. I seriously thought about quitting and driving the four hours home dwelling on how I failed and can't do anything right. I ended up keeping the reservation and making s'mores in the rain because, damn it, if I'm going to go camping, I'm going to enjoy it. The guy in the camper next to me gave me the nickname Lieutenant Dan. I owned it, and I thought it was funny. Uh, that's a reference to the Gary Sinise character from uh, Forrest Gump. Uh, oh, Boy, do I love that awful some moment. I had I had one similar to that uh, years ago, 12 years ago, uh, to be precise. I had just celebrated five years of sobriety, and I got a great campsite, but I had to get it during the week because it was booked up on the weekends. It's a beautiful campsite right on a stream. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to go by myself and just be my own best friend. Well, you know, cut to eight hours into it. I'm feeling lonely. The campsite next to me is filled with the family. My family never was. You know, one of the guys in the family has the physique I always wished I had. He catches the biggest fish in the history of <laughs> that camping site. And their dog is well behaved, you know, unlike every dog I've ever raised where I was too lazy to ever really train them right and I'm just comparing and despairing and and they're cooking this big fish dinner and I'm just standing around my grill feeling lonely cooking cooking three hot dogs and at one point I look up and I'm just looking at them with envy and I look back down and my hot dogs have rolled off the grill into the dirt I just packed up my shit and left. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a non-binary person who refers to themselves as squid. And about their bipolar disorder, they write, It makes me not trust my own brain and my own feelings. Like they're coming from a voice in my head that just doesn't like me. 
Oh, that's so good. I think we all have that voice in our head that doesn't like us, but I would imagine bipolar really, really ramps that up. Uh, this is from Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by LoserBot5000, and he writes, uh, you say, and he's speaking to me, you say not to hate yourself for what turns you on, but what if what turns you on is hating yourself? Wow, that's... That's an M.C. Escher question, to which I would say it's okay to use that when you're being sexual, if that's what turns you on, but leave it there. Leave it for the bedroom and try to be your own best friend outside of it. Oh, that sounds so touchy-feely. Sometimes I make myself uncomfortable. This is filled out by James, and he writes uh, about his autism. I, it's his, it's never been anything I'm ashamed of, but oftentimes I feel like a cog in the wrong part of the machine, and I can't mesh with anyone around me. I have heard that a lot from people who uh, struggle with autism. I can't imagine what that's like. I, you know, I know what it feels like to to feel out of place, but to have it be something that's a part of who you are physically, it's got to be difficult. Snapshot from his life, I finally decided to see a therapist after feeling this way for years, but airing my grievances out loud just made me feel like a fraud. My family's supportive, my job is stable, I have good friends that have been with me for over a decade, but the need for intimacy just feels like a deep pit in my stomach. And that's where I think support groups are awesome because, you know, therapy is awesome for many, many things. But the one thing that it can't fill is that peer support. And I don't know about you guys, but many times in therapy, you know, when my therapist is being kind to me, I'll think to myself, well, they're just saying that because they're paying me. And while I don't believe that is true, emotionally, that part of my brain blocks the ability to take in their their kindness to to some degree but when people don't have any reason to lie to you about caring about you it's much easier to take that in and for me that became the template for learning how to be intimate in other areas of my life just I'm just a big big fan of of support groups one of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com, and help is, uh, it's not health, BetterHelp.com, H-E-L-P. Uh, they'll assess your needs. They'll match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. I've been doing it for years, and my therapist has helped me with so many issues, especially my self-hatred and the mean part of my brain. Uh, the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facil facilitating, 
facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So go to betterhelp.com slash mental. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for you guys. You get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And then one more survey before we get to the interview with Ben. This is a happy moment filled out by an agender person who refers to themselves as Knitting Critter. And they write, getting a new hank of really beautiful, well-made yarn is an unadulterated pleasure. I never knew... uh, is that what you call it, a hank, or is, is that their nickname for it? Um, I love every last thing about it. The woolly smell, the color, the sweet softness between the fingers. When I remove the label, it's mine. Then I wind it into a ball, a different kind of pleasure, because we have to cooperate so as to not tangle, and also because I can feel it stretch and give and flex Really good yarn is amazingly cooperative, and you can feel that it wants to be made into something beautiful and warm and comforting. Beginning to knit with it is a kind of a dance between me and the yarn. Does it resist? Is it cranky or like a golden retriever? Is its heart's desire to become the best it can be? Working with willing yarn is heaven, and we haven't even begun to talk about the swoon of color or the joy of a finished project or how happy it makes me to think that it will keep my loved ones warm. Uh, that's, fuck, it's mind-blowing. And my brain is so fucked up. The first time I read, read this 
my first thought was, yeah, but eventually it's just going to get cum on it. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe listen, thanks for coming in. (laughs) I'm here with Ben Feynman, who is a therapist in training based here in Los Angeles. Also has a great podcast called Very Bad Therapy. You uh, co-host it with uh, Carrie. Her last name escapes me. Carrie? Carrie Weta. Yeah. And uh, I was a guest on your guys' podcast a while back and really enjoyed talking to you guys. And I was like, hey, the door's open if you want to come beyond mine. And so so here we are. Lots of stuff to to talk about. The first thing that I, I want to talk about is the fact that you were a high-stakes professional poker player <laughs> for 12 years living in Las Vegas. What what was that like? How did you how did you get into playing cards when i was uh, a kid you know a teenager in middle school and in high school i just always enjoyed playing cards with my friends and i think like everybody i thought i was better than them um and so that that continued when i went to college in boston and when i turned 21 i knew that i wanted to go to the the nearest casino because i just enjoyed playing poker and for are we talking seven card stud texas hold'em Mostly Texas Hold'em, yeah. uh, no limit Texas Hold'em, like the the kind of thing you you see on TV at three in the morning and you wonder yeah. who are these people, and that was yeah. me essentially. So at the time, um, I was in a relationship with a guy who had lived in uh, Las Vegas, and so during the the spring break of my senior year, and I promise I won't tell you my whole life story. I don't mind. <laughs> um, we went to Vegas in part just to visit and in part to see if it felt like I could actually beat the games in Vegas. And it felt like that was a, a possibility. And so we got an apartment right then and there. And the day that I took my last exam in college, we packed up the U-Haul and drove to Vegas. And I didn't really want to get a job. I didn't really want to become an adult. And I really liked playing cards. So I figured if there's ever a time to try this, I, I'll, I'll do it now. And if it doesn't work, I'll, I'll have something to fall back on. And was your boyfriend supportive? Tremendously. Um, I, I don't think it would have worked out if I didn't have the support of, of him, of uh, my family. I'm sure internally they were screaming, yeah. but oh uh, I think they trusted me enough that if I failed at it, which was certainly a possibility, that um, I wouldn't have one of those went broke in Vegas and did something crazy stories attached to it. Give me some snapshots from the, the early days of playing like what kind of snapshots? Uh, you know, maybe a big win, a big loss. Uh, what what kind of uh, buy-ins were were we talking? How much money would you for for the person that doesn't play poker out there? How much money were you putting on the on the line to buy in for? Are we talking tournaments? Just a regular table? What uh, tournaments, cash games, and of course it, the amount of money I had on the table grew as my career, if you want to call it a career. Um, 
kind of developed. So when I started, I you know I'd be playing in the casino. I'd, I'd have a couple hundred dollars on the table, and then at, at the height of my success, um, I guess financial success. I think there's a big difference between financial success and personal success, which has a lot to do with why I'm a therapist now. Uh, I, I would sit with maybe ten, twenty thousand dollars on the table, which is crazy to think about it in retrospect. But at the time, it felt normal because that's that's the community I was in. That's that's kind of the world I. I, I, I just traveled in on a day-to-day basis. There, there's a term called uh, a tell. It's spelled T-E-L. Uh, T-E-L-L. T-E-L-L. Yeah. I don't know why I thought it was T-E-L. Because I thought poker players couldn't afford an additional L. <laughs> Especially they're, they're those hotels. They're all in. Uh, talk about reading the the body language when when you're in a game. You know what percentage of your choices are based on the cold hard facts of the cards and how much is based on you reading the other person and what kind of knowledge do you glean or try to glean from your opponent? Right. It's definitely a combination of both. And I think when I was starting out, I had this assumption that I was going to be an expert in body language. And like you see in the movies, you stare at somebody and then they do something with their left nostril and you know exactly what they have and that they're bluffing. And I'm sure there are people who excel at that. I was not one of them. I found out very early on that if I was certain what I was looking at in another person, uh, more often than not, I was wrong. And I became uh, much more kind of attuned to betting patterns, Um, unless it's something really obvious, like they start shaking or they just break down and start crying in the middle of a hand, which doesn't happen often. (laughs) Has it happened? No. (laughs) But that's a good sign that something's going on. But if if they're betting in a way that doesn't add up, it doesn't make sense then you have to ask yourself, is this because they're just not playing well? Or is this a bluff that they kind of fell into in the middle of the hand? So it became a little more analytical than I think reading other people, which is interesting because I think therapy is very similar in that you can be really sure that you know what somebody is experiencing, but there's a good chance you're going to be wrong and you need to make sure that you understand their experience before kind of acting on impulse. It's, it's amazing how often we will base our day, how we're feeling, on our projection into the future, which is almost always wrong. Right. Or our projection about other people. Right. Where like, it's like if somebody cuts you off in traffic, they're an asshole. Right. And if you cut somebody else off in traffic, you're having a bad day and hopefully they understand. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's the same thing with, with poker, with therapy, where you just need to make sure you're understanding the other person's experience or else you make decisions that feel really good because you're certain about what you know. And then it turns out you're not and you have no more money in front of you. What did you learn about yourself playing poker for mm. money as a profession? I mean, you would have been considered a professional poker player, right? It was your mm-hmm. it was your full-time job. Yeah. That's just so mind-blowing <laughs> to me. Uh, the biggest thing I learned about myself, and this is with a lot of hindsight, and the fact that I'm no longer playing poker, I think, speaks to it, is it wasn't something that was at all fulfilling or meaningful outside of like the the short-term bursts of excitement when I'd be doing really well. Um, it wasn't really something that I felt was aligned with my values in the, in the big picture. And little by little, I learned that you can't, you can't force yourself to find a sense of meaning in something that isn't really right for you. Um, so that I also learned that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Las Vegas. <laughs> oh my God. My least favorite town. <laughs> I, I love it as a concept and it's fun to visit but it's exhausting and on some level it doesn't feel genuine and that 
I think wears on you if you live there. You want something that's of a little more substance. Yeah, it just it feels like everybody's id is just pulled out and flaunting. It's there's no nuance, and there's just a sense of of desperation and um, compulsivity that in my earlier years I loved. I loved going there. It was so exciting. But the older I got, the more I just, it made me sad. Vegas makes me sad. Yeah. That should be their new slogan. <laughs> Vegas makes you sad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally understand that. Um, There's so much exploitation going on there disguised as you're going to have a tremendous time. And I'm sure people do have a tremendous time there. But isn't most of it at the expense of somebody else? Yeah. Vegas is just like a, a zero-sum city. And I should say this, the Strip specifically. I think Vegas, beyond the Strip, can be a lovely place. Right. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think it feels great when you're expecting people to define their happiness and their enjoyment of a place by the external environment, especially if that's where you live, especially if that's where you work, because if things aren't going well or if you don't have a good night, either as a poker player or just as a human being, um, you're, you're sort of told you're not doing it right. What is the feeling that you would get when you're in a high stakes game and you get dealt pocket aces <laughs> um for for our listener that would be uh in texas hold'em uh everybody gets two cards face down and then there are five community cards that get uh turned over as the hand goes on and so everybody kind of shares those five cards so the two cards that you have face down it's very important that the that you get a good hand out of uh, out of those, and obviously getting two aces face down is the best that you can you can hope for. Right. I don't know about you, but I, I've never done heroin, but getting <laughs> pocket aces feels pretty close. Right, and sometimes the end result can feel similar. I've never done heroin either, but I assume the end result of pocket aces can feel similar. Where if it doesn't work out, you're not feeling great. Right. So, so what 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 do you feel when you get a a, a good a good hand face down? Describe. Sure. If if you can physically, mentally, uh, certainly excitement, and then perhaps you get you know a little bit of a adrenaline rush, or you feel your body temperature rising a bit, and immediately my brain switches on. And I mean, this is past tense. It's been about two mm -hmm. years since I last played poker, but your brain switches on to how can I get the most value out of this? Because depending on who you're playing against or the context that you're playing in, it can mean taking it really slow and trying not to give it away that you have a really good hand. Or it can mean being, you know, playing it super fast to try and build a huge pot and you start strategizing and analyzing and figuring out how you can tell a story that gets other people to think you don't have the hand you do so you can win as much money as possible. So you would just uh, be calling someone's bet instead of uh, calling and raising uh, so that, that they think their hand is more competitive than it, than it actually is. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's a necessary part of it. Um, you can't play the same hand the same way every time or people will figure out what you have. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly times when you have something like pocket aces and you may get the sense that as the hand progresses, you're actually not ahead anymore. Somebody else has a better hand. And then you sort of, you know, your, your spidey sense goes on and you have to figure out what kind of risks do I want to take here knowing that I've already invested something into this hand. Uh, there, for the listener, there's a term called a bad beat in <laughs> uh, in poker, which is when you have a hand that 99% of the time would be the best hand at the table, but for some reason, somebody else has a better hand, and you've usually bet a lot of money. 
any bad beats come to mind? So two come to mind. One is statistically the worst possible bad beat, where there were there's one exact combination of cards that could have come out as the last two cards dealt to everybody communally. And that was the only way I would lose the hand. For those of you who know poker, I had uh, flopped a set of pocket kings, so I had three kings. The other person had two queens. So the only way I could have lost is if the next two cards were queen and queen. And that is, in fact, what happened, which it wasn't for a ton of money, so I think it was worth the story. Yeah. Um, financially, the, the one time that I actually was on ESPN at a, a final table at the World Series of Poker. What year was this? Uh, this was 2007. And it was not the main event where it's like, you know, for the, the tens of millions of dollars. That's, that's nothing I ever achieved. Um, but it was a smaller event, but still very significant to me, certainly. And it's always fun to be doing something on TV, I think, as I'm sure you can attest to. <laughs> and uh, I ended up finishing fifth in that tournament. But I, I played a pot where we were, we were all in. We had all of our chips in before the cards were even dealt. And whoever had won that pot would have the most chips at the table. And I had ace-king, and my opponent had king-10. So I was about 70% to win the hand, and I did not, which was, of course, quite frustrating. <laughs> what, what is the most amount that you have lost in a tournament or on a given day? Um, on a tournament, it would be $25,000. That was the buy-in for the tournament. And then um, for a cash game, I, I lost about $18,000 in a single pot. Which, let me tell you, is not a fun thing to do. And you, <laughs> just, I just left. I went home. I felt sad for a while. How, yeah, how would you deal with, with, with it? Would it affect how you felt as a person? And is that one of the things that led you to eventually find another line of work? Yes, and I think indirectly. So the way having, you know, maybe a big loss or a series of big losses or, you know, I went um, two years breaking even at one point, which can wear on you as well because it reinforces the idea that you're not good enough. Um, and I look back, this was largely in my 20s, and I look back, I didn't really have the, the emotional intelligence or the self-awareness to understand how it was impacting me mentally. And so I would try and distract myself. I would sort of withdraw. And I think at its, its most harmful to me personally, I think I projected a lot of those feelings of dissatisfaction onto my partner. So the person that I, I had moved to Las Vegas with, we ended up uh, being together for 13 years. And when I look back on the times that I think I had the the most significant periods of being down as a poker player, I think they loosely correlated to our greatest challenges as a couple, because at the time I, I really didn't have the ability to say, hey, I'm really struggling with this professionally. It's impacting me personally. And here's what I need to do to feel better about myself, to be okay with this so it doesn't kind of seep into our relationship. And Yeah, I haven't heard many 20-year-old men <laughs> say that sentence. Right. And I think poker is one of those professions. I mean, it's, it's a very privileged thing to be able to do. It's a very fortunate thing to be able to do. But it's one of those professions where you're, you're not really expected to develop any kind of emotional awareness. But it's so important to your professional success. Another term, you mentioned uh, the idea of a tell. There's another term called going on tilt, which is essentially something happens whether you, you get unlucky or you lose a big pot, and you just start playing completely irrationally. You try Trying to, to make up for it. Yeah. And you need to be able to walk away from the table or calm yourself. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're undermining the abilities you have by not having um, comparable kind of emotional skills to say, this is, I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to be able to, to stay present here. I should just go home. And that's hard because you want to stay when you're losing. 
because it sucks to go home and lose. Your relationship with your your ex partner it's your ex correct yes okay um what were some of the things when you would have a bad day what were some of the things that you would project onto him and did he ever see this pattern and bring it to your attention i think it's it's really difficult to look back and see that kind of clarity where something would happen and it would affect our relationship and we would talk about it um the way we communicated through our problems was not really talk about them and then wait until they bubbled up and then I would bring it up because I have the more like, I guess, anxious attachment style Mm -hmm. and try and get things fixed to ease the distress I felt because it seemed like he wasn't there for me. And his response, because of, you know, his, his way of being in relationships from my perspective was to kind of withdraw and kind of lay low, let the, let the crisis pass and these things, these conflicts we got into were always removed from whatever the the actual concern was, whether it was a day ago, a year ago, because we didn't have the emotional language to sit down and say, something happened, we need to talk about it. So if something was happening for me professionally, it might manifest in our relationship weeks, months, years later in a way that I was totally unaware of. At the time, I just projected it onto him and said, you need to change, which is completely unhealthy, of course. Were there any personality types uh, that you saw playing poker that where you thought there are more of this type than there are in the average population? Can you give me an example of personality type? Uh, well, for example, when when I first started playing cards, it, it would mostly be when I would uh, be doing stand-up at a casino. It would be in Reno or Las Vegas. And so I'd kill the day by playing cards. And I remember one of the first... Th- times I was doing this, I thought this table is filled with the most unhappy, Hmm. cynical, asocial people I've ever met. I think that's perhaps true. I think playing poker itself can feel very mundane. So you're not seeing somebody necessarily at their best. It's also your your well-being, your happiness, your success comes at the expense of somebody else. And so that kind of um, collectivism, engagement, Spending time with people you enjoy is, I think, it's not really, there's no foundation for it, but I agree 100%. And among professional poker players, in retrospect, I am astounded at how many people hated it that couldn't really find their way out of it because, I mean, they were very successful and they made a lot of money and they were really good at it. But at some point, it feels like a job. That's what happened for me. And it seems uh, a little bit absurd to say that playing a game feels like a job. There is just, I think, a, a great deal of, um, privilege to be able to say this thing that I can make money at, I'm just going to walk away because I don't enjoy it. But I think a lot of people would take that option if they knew they could find a sense of fulfillment outside of poker. I think it's, it speaks to who you are as a person that, that you were looking for more fulfillment and that you could recognize that, that part of yourself that was, that was feeling empty. It's so easy in, in our culture to buy into the cult of money and property and prestige and to think that that equals success. Uh, very few people, I think, are raised in a family where that delineation is is made clear that, yes, it's nice to be able to provide for yourself and your, and your family and to live comfortably. But another concern is what toll is it taking on your soul? Yeah. And I think it takes people a very long time to flip that switch and say, I just need to make a significant change. 
because it's much easier and I think much more in line with the narrative that we're told in modern Western society, which is I just need to cope better. I need to suck it up. Yeah. Do whatever it takes to keep doing the thing that will make me happy if I just learn how to do it right. And that's not always the option. And I don't think, at least for myself, it took me 32, 33 years to figure out this was actually not what I wanted in life. What did it feel like when you made the decision to become a therapist and you first started really gaining that knowledge and the and the tools to help people? Are, are there any moments where you just felt like, like you'd won a big pot, but nobody was getting hurt? <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. It's, I think it's a different kind of uh, release of, of neurochemicals, but it's, it's that feeling of doing something that feels like you've accomplished something significant, except in this case, you're, you're helping somebody find a, a life that feels more meaningful for them. Um, I don't think it's, it's as exciting. I don't think it's as stimulating, but it, it is as significant, more significant because it's, it's something that's in line with what, what feels actually meaningful for me. There's, there's a much deeper feeling of accomplishment in, in being a good therapist for people. You know, for me, finding meaning in my life and purpose in my life, instead of getting high or doing things compulsively, especially, you know, things that harm relationships, it to me is is like eating a healthy meal that may not be incredibly delicious, but it keeps my blood sugar stable. It keeps me healthy. But there's that part of me that wants to eat candy for for dinner. Yeah, there's there's such a huge difference between being happy and being fulfilled. And I think we're often told it's the same thing. Yeah. It's very easy also, I think, to mistake excitement for love. Hmm. Uh, I imagine you've had clients who come in and they're in a toxic relationship but because there's drama and there's somebody is is um has chosen a partner much like a unavailable parent that they had growing up that something about it feels like love to them uh is is that something that you can talk about or yeah i mean i can talk about that personally as well as professionally the idea that it is terrifying to be alone and there needs to be uh, kind of an acceptance that it's okay to be in that ambiguity, that, that kind of groundlessness in life. So for me, when um, my, my ex and I were together for, I was 19 when we met and 32 when we separated. And so I hadn't even been an adult and single. And that's absolutely terrifying because I had defined myself through our relationship in so many different ways. And I think in, peop in people, uh, for people when they're struggling in a relationship and it's chaotic and at times um, harmful, it seems easier to stay in that chaos than to separate and say, um, this, this is just something I have to learn. Hmm. How do I phrase it? To say that it's okay to sort of face life's challenges without these things defining my sense of purpose, even if it is uh, something that's more chaos-based or more um, conflict-based. Let's say you get a, a client who comes in there and they can't recognize the toxicity of a relationship. Give me, give me some examples of red flags in a, in a relationship. Um, that if, you know, if a client mentioned, you know, such and such is, is happening, you know, what are kind of the greatest hits of dysfunctional relationships, romantic relationships that, that you see clients bringing in and unable to see themselves? Hmm. 
it, it seems like there are maybe kind of two archetypes of the stances people take that can then manifest in all kinds of different red flags. And this comes from the language of uh, emotionally focused therapy. I'm not sure if it's something that you're familiar with. I'm not. But the idea that uh, one person can take on the role of a pursuer in the relationship and the other person takes on the role of a withdrawer. And so when there's conflict, the pursuer feels like this isn't safe. I need to know that this person's there for me. And they do everything they can to get the other person to come back and put the pieces back together. And this can manifest in things like um, criticizing, attacking, blaming, shaming even. And those are an expression of needs. It's saying, you're not there for me. You need to see how this is causing hurt. But all it does is push the other person away. Because if you're more of a withdrawer, what you experience is a threat. And so you say, I can't, there's nothing I can do to do this right. Um, I need to just sort of shut this down, close the door, and like let the other person uh, kind of calm down in a sense. And there's a deep sense of, I'm not good enough. So when you hear people say, I'm not good enough, and then the other person reinforces the message that they're not good enough. It's a huge red flag because they're both trying to have their needs met, but they're going about it in a way that creates the cycle where you just push each other away, and you don't see a path forward because it just happens over and over again. And, I mean, I can personally relate to that experience. It's it's devastating because you try so hard to make it work, but the things you're doing aren't actually the things that need to be done to help things move forward. It's amazing how impactful what we do with our fear and our anger, how much that impacts the direction of our lives and our interpersonal relationships. It, I never even realized how angry I was until I had to find a way other than being cold hmm. and withdrawn and trying to win, you know, air quotes, right. the 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 disagreement to actually invite somebody in to what I'm feeling and ask them to help me right to say I'm feeling so angry right now and I don't know why I want to put my fist through a wall rather than saying why did you ever do the fucking dishes or you know whatever <laughs> stereotype I can I can think of and that was a turning point for me but it felt like I was sitting on a nuclear bomb and just I felt like such a wimp hmm. for just internalizing it and but it did pass it did pass through me yeah. and it did leave you know and moments later I I got I got to feel good that I didn't make somebody else suffer because I was suffering that right. I didn't criticize right that I was I I suppose vulnerability and identifying needs uh, while I wasn't at a place yet where I could identify what my needs are because I first had to understand what I was feeling. Do you get clients coming in that don't even know what they're feeling? Absolutely. And to to what you had spoke about, the idea of fear and anger in relationships, it's a healthy part of being a human being is experiencing those emotions. And so for people who come in, whether it's couples or individuals, there's a sense sometimes that I shouldn't be feeling this way. And of course, there is unhealthy fear and unhealthy anger. And it's not about eliminating any of it or expressing all of it. It's about having that internal sense of what is this telling me and knowing that it's okay to be able to talk about these things, because if it isn't, it just sits inside you and manifests as something else. And if there's too much freedom to talk about it, then there might not be a kind of measured way of expressing your needs to somebody else um, or what your experience is in a relationship. So I think a lot of couples work uh, since that's what you're specifically asking about, is 
making relationships healthy so that they can sustain these kinds of emotions that often feel like they're just going to overwhelm the whole system and make it impossible to come back together. A healthy relationship has fear and has anger in it because those are core emotions of being human beings. We can't turn it off. There, there are no wrong feelings, just healthy or unhealthy ways of uh, expressing them. Yeah. Uh, your podcast is called Very Bad Therapy, and you guys do research on experiences people have had in, fer- in therapy that were not good. Uh, you hear people's stories on your podcast. Where do we begin to talk about <laughs> sh- shitty therapy? I appreciate that you said shitty therapy and not shitty therapists. Because every single therapist is capable of shitty therapy, and it's very important that that gets talked about. Because as therapists, we are the culturally sanctioned healers. We are the people you go to when you're having mental health distress. And if it doesn't go well, there's this idea that something might be wrong with you, the client. You might be too broken for therapy. You didn't do it right. And all of that is bullshit, but we don't add that into the narrative around therapy. And so our mission in the podcast, it's kind of two missions. One is to empower clients to get better results from therapy, to walk away getting what they want out of it rather than potentially feeling like they did something wrong, which is just tremendously harmful. And as far as speaking to therapists specifically, we want to normalize the fact that mistakes happen and then also pair that with knowledge from researcher experts about how can we do better as a field. Uh, And there are times when somebody is in a relationship with a therapist where they need to leave. Oh yeah. Because 100%. it's the therapist is bad and there is no potential for there to be good therapy, at least in that relationship. Right. Uh, it's kind of an extreme example, but let's, let's talk about that. Um, I occasionally get emails from people that are like, you know, is it bad that, that you know, my therapy, my therapist talks to me about his sex life. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God. Holy fuck. Yeah. That is worse than bad. That is uh, talk talk about some of the things that that uh are red flags, not just oh this needs more scrutiny but pack your bags and fucking run. Right. If you feel like internally this therapist is doing something that you disagree with that feels wrong that makes you feel like you're being harmed The most important thing that you can do, if you feel like you can, is talk to your therapist about it, because a good therapist will be open to your experience of the therapy. And it's hard to like draw clear, precise boundaries around what is and what isn't good or bad therapy. But if you're a client, you know how you're feeling. You can access, does this feel off at all? Does this feel good? Does this feel like it's hurting me? And if you can talk to your therapist about it, make sure you get answers that you feel like satisfy you. And I think what happens most frequently is people don't feel like they can talk to their therapist about it. It's always the therapist's responsibility to help foster a a culture of feedback, in a sense, in the therapeutic relationship, where something's not going right for the client, whether it's something small or something big. The client can say, this doesn't work for me. Can we try something else? Or that really bothered me. We heard a story from a woman who was Korean-American, and she shared her experience where the therapist referred to her as being Chinese multiple times. And of course, this bothered her. And during the week between sessions, she had time to process it and realized, I need to talk to him about it. It, This is going to mess up my ability to get what I want out of therapy if we can't come together over this. And she brought it to him and he got defensive and said, 
do you think he might be a little too sensitive about this? Oh, my God. What a horrible therapist. Right. And I'm so grateful that the story ends with her just leaving. I mean, I wish the story ended with the therapist being receptive to the harm he caused. But if you are able to bring your concerns to a therapist and that's the kind of response you get, just leave. If you don't feel like you can even bring up the fact that something is bothering you, that's a pretty big red flag as well. And I want to be sensitive to the idea that it's not usually that simple to just leave. I mean, we form very real relationships with one another as therapists and clients, and people don't always have access to just go find another therapist. It's tough, but it's so important for therapists to make sure that the client can feel heard in these moments when bad therapy happens, because it's an inevitability, not with every client, but every therapist at some point will do something that is a complete mistake that they shouldn't have done. Um, and usually that just depends on the client's subjective experience of counseling. It isn't always my therapist told me about his sex life. I think that's bad for everybody. Sometimes it's a thing that some clients really find helpful and other clients feel really invalidated um, or spoken down to. And there needs to be a, a channel of communication if you feel like a red flag exists to say, can we talk about this because this doesn't feel okay to me. I think sometimes just have, you know, the sentence that you just said, for many of us, that can be the key that unlocks the door because we don't know where how to find the words to express. Hmm. We don't know it's okay to say, this doesn't feel good to me. Right. Because we think the therapist knows everything. Right. And much like a doctor, you know, who would tell a doctor that's not how you fix my broken arm, but this isn't medicine. Right. And that's a, a huge misconception. And I think as a field, I mean, therapy is incredibly helpful. I think sometimes we do a disservice by telling our clients this will definitely work. Now, you want to create hope because without hope, it's, it's probably not going to work. But one of the things we do on our podcast is look at a lot of research about therapy. And if you look at the research in aggregate, about 50 to 60% of clients actually get significant change as a result of therapy, which means that almost half don't. And 5 to 10% actually feel a little bit worse uh, while they're in therapy. And if this isn't normalized, if this isn't part of the dialogue to say, if this doesn't work, what can we do? What can we do differently? I use these really short outcome measures at the beginning and end of each session where clients actually rate uh, how they feel like they've been over the last week. And then at the end of the session, how they feel like I have done as the therapist. It creates an environment in which I know exactly what their experience is. And if it's not you know, as good as it could be, it's my responsibility to make those changes. And without those kinds of I think systems in place, even if you're just bringing it up informally to say, how is this going for you? Uh, you, you really run the risk of not letting clients have a space to feel like they can bring these things up. That's got to be scary, though, for, for some clients, especially those who are uh, conflict averse to give you a less than average rating on a, on a given week. Is right. it, what kind of conversations do you have with them before you implement that? I tell them, I don't want the best feedback possible. I want honest feedback. And if that doesn't feel like something that you know is comfortable for you yet, that's totally fine. But if it seems like in our working together, uh, it's, it's not really going as well as it could be, or it seems like I may have done something that really bothered them, and at the end of every session they're saying, I'm doing a great job as a therapist, at the very least it invites a conversation. That's what these measures do. They, they invite conversations so that if there are things that might be important to talk about, it maybe little by little makes it a little bit safer for people to bring it up and say, 
um, yeah, this isn't actually going well. Because that's, that's terrifying. That is so scary, I think, for a lot of clients to say because there's a very real power dynamic in therapy. And it's you're not going to go to your medical doctor and say, hey, the way you healed my broken leg didn't really work that well for me. I mean, you might if, you, if you're walking with a limp. But <laughs> if like the, the scar is just a little bit, uh, you know, more obvious than, than you expected it to be, you just kind of, you, you accept that and you say, this is, this is just how it is, but it doesn't have to be that way with therapy. It, it had never occurred to me in therapy until I've been in therapy for several years that, and, and this is true of support groups also, that this was the template for healthy relationships hmm. moving forward, feeling heard, feeling seen, uh, having my feelings validated, um, not having my bullshit co-signed sometimes, hmm. um, but it being expressed to me in a way that was compassionate, hmm. that was not confrontational or uh, hurtful. All of those things were so helpful in me growing as a person. What, other than going to therapy in and of itself, what are some things that you would like to see change in the population in terms of people's personal growth other than going to therapy other than going to therapy hmm. so a tool or a an aspect of their psyche or their soul their brain where where do we need the most work collectively taking time to separate from the expectations that other people have for us and connect with what feels truly important to us. And often that, oftentimes that requires a social media cleanse, taking a few weeks off of social media, um, watching the news a little bit less, and talking with people that you feel you can have maybe an honest conversation about to explore your own, like you said, your own psyche. What truly matters to you? Some people find that through reading books. Some people find that through journaling. Some people find that just from having time for self-care and going on walks. But anything that allows you to be alone with yourself, which is, of course, very difficult uh, for a lot of people for very yeah. good reasons, but that's that's where the answers are to live a life that feels meaningful, truly meaningful, is kind of what, what is inside of you. I, I love all the stuff that you're sharing about uh, listening to your body, because I don't think there is a way to, to truly find peace if your body and the things it's telling you if you're not on the same team, hmm. if you hate your body, if, you know, when you get a tight stomach, you tell yourself you're just being a wuss, etc. instead of saying, what is it about this situation that's that's causing me anxiety? Hmm. And maybe it's, who knows, maybe it's uh, irrational anxiety, but at the very least, finding out whether it's rational or irrational is is worth investigating. And all of these things that you uh, have have brought up to me all fit in that heading of let your body be your best friend. Yeah, and even if it feels like it's something that you can only tolerate for a short period of time, give yourself one minute a day of checking in. Even in those moments when it feels like it's it's most unsettled, when you need that distraction, you need that escape, uh, there's, there's something really valuable that your body is trying to tell you. And if you have the, the internal and external support to be with those things, there's just so much wisdom in there from, from your own experience, from your own perspectives. What are some things that people 
might be on the lookout for, uh, that their body might be telling them something that they should listen to. Um, you know, obviously, uh, tight stomach, uh, sweaty palms, feeling of dread. That's mm. a big one for me. Yeah. Starting to listen to my feelings of dread in relationships was, was a game changer. Letting go of that part of my brain that told me I'm a bad person if I don't have a relationship with this person who I always associate with dread. Yeah. What are, what are some other things you would add to that? I like how I asked you a question and then I talked for eight minutes. I like your answer. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I, I think specifically about, um, so I, I kind of, I would say one of the things that I, I specialize in, in in working with clients is that that sense of where you are in life should make you happy, but it isn't. And I think for a lot of people, what they experience is waking up in the morning and there's a feeling of like sluggishness, heaviness, not wanting to get out of bed and feeling like there's nothing about the day that really excites you, even though you're living a life that a lot of people suggest should make you happy, should make you excited to get up and um, start your day. And if you're dragging yourself through the day, if there's that full body heaviness, it can show up as like tension in your shoulders or, you know, headaches, things. There's so many different ways that uh, that kind of stress, that kind of burnout can manifest physically. But if it doesn't fit with anything that's going on in your life, but you're getting these physical symptoms, quite often that's just a sign that there's there's something that's more psychological that's happening that's causing you to feel that way. And I should add, um, right now in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an election cycle, those things are all very normal to feel because we're we're just bombarded by things that are very stressful. So having that internal curiosity about where are these feelings coming from, I think is a necessary part so you don't end up... Uh, making conclusions about yourself that, that might not be um, kind of informed by where those things are actually coming from rather than just manifestations of life Pay, being of, really hard of, right pa now. Just paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to uh, share about your story or therapy or what should you look for in a therapist? Hmm. The answer to what you should look for in a therapist is is so varied based on individual client preferences. Mm -hmm. um, it, there are some pretty popular myths in our field about what therapies are best, what therapists are best, but the absolute most important thing, no matter what, is just the therapeutic alliance, the relationship you build with your therapist. You can be meeting with an absolutely brilliant psychologist, and if you just do not like this person, it's going to be very difficult for you to feel safe and be vulnerable. So connecting with someone who you feel like you can build a really great therapeutic relationship with is more important than anything else. So in finding a therapist, it's um, looking for somebody who fits that description. And then uh, if you're having a consultation with them, ask them whatever questions you feel are important for you to understand to feel safe with them. Um, that's at the top of the list. And then everything else is kind of tied for second place in terms of the specific theory, uh, the experience the therapist has, uh, where they practice. Those things are far less important than just knowing that this is a person that you can actually feel safe talking to. Occasionally I will get emails from people who will share something with me that they've never shared with their therapist. Mm -hmm. And I urge them so strongly to share it with their therapist, but some of them are so afraid to share it face to face with somebody that they are going to have to see in mm -hmm. person. It's not like I'm this, you know, bastion of, <laughs> of, 
of help that is is better than therapy. It's just they don't have to see me on the street the next week, right. and they're just doing it through email. What? How can somebody who has a secret they're afraid to share with mm-hmm. their therapist? How can they get to that place where they can share it with them? Any any advice or tips or encouragement? As a therapist, uh, I think the the easy answer is it's something that. Uh, I, I want to hear that is important for me to hear so that we can talk about it in a way that feels like it will help you move forward. I know for clients it is never that easy and it's something that takes time, potentially a lot of time. And I think what, what I would want to tell people is that's also okay. It's something when, when you feel like, you know, it's, it's something that you're ready to talk about that you can, but in the meantime, making sure that this is a person that you feel like you're, you're building that trust with. Um, it may be something that takes, weeks, months, even years. Um, and usually for good reason, because these secrets are things that we hold on to for very, very powerful reasons. Yeah, is there anything else that you would uh, like to add before we wrap up? Uh, I want to say thank you. This was uh, wonderful speaking with you. And uh, I am actually required to state uh, that I am a registered associate marriage and family therapist under supervision uh, as per the state of California. So I uh, just wanted to make sure that I throw that in there so I don't get a sternly worded letter. I got you because you're in the process of uh, accruing your hours to get your license. Yes. Well, then this interview is totally invalidated. <laughs> <laughs> you just wasted your time. <laughs> and and but, everybody else's. Yeah. Uh, ben, I love talking to you, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you for a great chat. Thanks, Paul. I love when I meet somebody who is just about to become a licensed therapist and you know that they are beginning the process of helping so many people just i just love it plus it was really cool to talk to somebody who played poker professionally that is such a mysterious world to me um i always forget to mention this but There are a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined. Uh, We could really use some financial support. Uh, You can do it either through a one-time or monthly donation through PayPal, uh, or you can do it via a monthly donation through Patreon. Um, Patreon, if you do it through Patreon, you can qualify for occasional raffles that I do for stuff I make in the wood shop, um, occasionally some bonus content. Um, but the bottom line is it, it really helps the show. And you can help us non-financially by subscribing to the podcast and uh, maybe going to iTunes, writing a nice review, giving us a good rating, all kinds of different ways. It's always, always appreciated. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Tony Guest. About his depression, he writes, like running a marathon in a lead suit and each person that passes me asks me why I'm going so slow. But his anxiety, being locked, being in a locked car sinking in a river that is the entire world around me. Oh, it's so dark. But his love addiction, like having a lock on my heart, soul, happiness, and trying to jam any key into it, hoping that someone else can open it. Oh, that is one of the best descriptions of love addiction I have I have read. About his uh, pure O, which uh, is purely uh, obsessive OCD, uh, purely in the thoughts. He writes, surely 
If I think and analyze enough about this problem, the answer will become obvious and easy. So what if I've been thinking about it for 20 years? About his codependency, if I put all of my time, energy, attention into making you feel good, then you'll return the favor eventually, someday, maybe, and I'll know what that's like too. About his anger issues, since speaking my feelings with you didn't work, maybe if I yell them at you, then you won't be able to ignore me and give me the attention I need. Oh, those are so good. So good. Thank you for those. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, a person who refers to themselves as the listener, and they write, Taking a deep breath uh, while sitting with my dog lying beside me by an open window in the evening when it's about 60 degrees out, no sound coming from inside, just sounds from outside my apartment, then exhaling the breath and sinking into my chair then remembering how small I am in this vast universe and how I exist in just a short moment of infinite time. It's awesome. Awesome. It's funny because you would think on the surface, thinking about how small we are and how vast the universe is would make us feel worse. But for some reason that feels, at least to me, it feels comforting. One of the fucked up things I do sometimes to ease my anxiety especially around death, is I think about all the people in the history of the world who have died. And it's like, how bad can it be if that many people have already experienced it? I know it doesn't make sense, but for some reason that's comforting to me. I remember being in sixth grade and or I was in fifth grade, and for some reason I was in the classroom where the sixth graders were, and there was a map of the United States and a bunch of geographic stuff on there that just looked like mumbo-jumbo to me. And I remember feeling such a deep anxiety that I would never be able to understand what that was, and that sixth grade would be just a complete failure for me, and I would never <laughs> get beyond sixth grade. This is a happy moment filled out by Angie Dennis, and she writes, The happiest moments in my life lasted less than a couple of minutes. They were while driving in the car with the sun shining and the perfect song came on the radio. For a brief moment, I felt no pain, no worry, no insecurities, just happiness. I love it. I love it. I think there's something about being in a moving car that also makes us feel like we're not standing still because I don't know about you guys, but one of my deepest fears is that I am and depression definitely exacerbates this, that I am standing still while the world is getting on with their lives and I'm just going to be left behind. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Rosie Potato and about being a sex crime victim. She writes, no one will ever understand. Whenever I hear or read any story about someone who is sexually abused, I immediately look for reasons as to why mine was different and therefore I'm to blame. Oh, sending you, sending you some love. That is sadly such a common thing that survivors of sexual molestation or violation uh, experience and they tell themselves. Um, I remember talking to Andrea Abbott, who was a great guest on this podcast, and I think her interview is still available. It's one of the most riveting interviews and darkly 
odd and, and, and funny. And she had um, been raped by her father multiple times. And as she was sharing this, I was thinking, now that's valid sexual abuse because what my mom did to me, she never touched my, my genitals. And I think I mentioned that to her and she said, I was just thinking that yours was so much more valid than mine because your mom wasn't drunk like my dad. And I just thought, man, it never ends. We will choose anything as ammunition to minimize our experience. I think especially when it was a caregiver because we don't want that to be true. It's much easier to blame ourselves than to say, wow, I got, I got dealt a shitty hand in terms of that. And it's especially confusing if you were raised in an environment where there were many positive things. It's, it's so hard to reconcile the, the mixed bag of, of good and bad. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls him a teenager, 17, calls himself TLC, and he writes... My granny was in and out of hospital and care homes for a few years before she died. On the radio was Tool's brand new album, which I had been greatly anticipating. And so, on such a lonely, mournful day, along to this new beautiful soundtrack, I unpacked this new telescope, aimed it up at the night sky, and I saw Saturn's rings for the first time in my life. Wow. Wow. That is cinematic. Thank you for that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Chubby Charles Sherman. And she writes, uh, my struggle is the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, and then describes it, fully insured Employed for five years, finally having enough money to pay off student loans and blowing it all on prescription drugs and doctor visits that you would die without. It is so fucked up that we have a system where people are actively trying to make money off of other people's sicknesses. And there's just silence about it in our political political word world very few people will point out how fucked fucked up it is and the fact that there is a large portion of the population that's been brainwashed to think that you're taking their right away to stop that from happening the cult of capitalism or I should say unfettered capitalism. I don't think capitalism in and of itself is, is, is wrong, but capitalism unchecked is, it just eats away at democracy, but enough of my soapbox. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by Betty. She writes, I have a hard time focusing on tasks due to anxiety and completing them due to depression, but today I made an entire meal for my roommates. I took hours aside and listened to your podcast and some music, and it felt so good to sit down like a family and eat. This has been one of the few good moments of my life recently. I just moved in with my wonderful partner, but my bipolar one is intensifying, and I'm dealing with traumatic memories of sexual assault by a family member when I was a child. I'm a fucking mess right now, but I don't want to lose this little moment of joy. 
P.S. I cooked tonight's meal, spinach and cheese, crescent rolls, pasta rosa, and blondies for dessert in the mental pod sweater that you sell. It's comfy as hell, and you need to plug it on your show more. Thank you for being my waiting room that doesn't suck while I wait for my therapist. Ah, thank you for that. Yeah, I always forget to mention that, that there are t-shirts and sweatshirts and coffee mugs uh, and other stuff that you can buy um, through the through the website. And there's some great, some great designs. There's one, I think one of my favorite ones is the picture of Herbert and it, uh, the caption on it says Saint Herbert. For those of you that are new to the podcast, he was, uh, my dog for, for 14 years and, uh, um, was such a character. And we often like to talk about his butthole on the, on the podcast. (laughs) This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. She writes, uh, it was a typical morning. I was woken up by a phone call from my mother who wanted me to do something for her. I put on clothes and went upstairs to help. For about 30 minutes, I tried talking to her and helping her get up and move around after her knee surgery. The whole time, she told me how much I didn't care about her and I was only helping her to get her inheritance. They're in such debt, even the collection agencies have given up, so I don't know when what inheritance she was thinking of. She started to tell me that I was an awful and manipulative and uh, that I should just leave and move out. This had to have been the 5,000th time she told me to go, but it was the first time I actually listened. After years of stress from being a caretaker of my grandmother and mother, who has Parkinson's among other ailments, and years of wanting to kill myself after being told that I was a bad daughter and I never loved my family, etc., I finally left my childhood home. The aftermath of leaving was awful. I got text after text and voicemail after voicemail about how terrible I was for leaving, but it was so worth it. I've lost 30 pounds since I moved. I can go to therapy and leave the house without having to ask for permission. My advice to anyone who is living with an abusive family, get out as soon as you safely can. You'll start to discover that you aren't who they made you think you are and that you really are a beautiful, special human being. Wow. Wow. High fucking five. And I'm actually uh, also a, a a fan of when you cut that person out, block them, block their phone number, block their email. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Kenny and about his sex addiction. He writes, yes, it was a problem in my last relationship and still is. Um, and the reason I wanted to read this one is these four things that he describes usually go hand hand in hand. About being a sex crime victim, he writes, not sure if it counts as a sex crime, but my foster sister initiated humping when I was around 12 to 13. That turned to oral sex and other stuff. Uh, I gravitate towards girls with issues or girls who intimidate me and not sure why. And anger issues all the time. I have the shortest fuse of anyone I know. It's really scary and at the same time liberating. Oh, and about his depression. It's the feeling of not feeling. I mean, all of those. If you read any any books about surviving sexual abuse, they so often are found together. 
This is a really heavy shame and secrets survey. It's filled out by a woman who identifies as female but gender confused. Uh, she calls herself trash can, not trash can't. She this is a long one. Identifies as pansexual, is in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, she writes, I think having your parents for neighbors is a recipe for disaster, especially when you learn you were an unwanted pregnancy and caused a shotgun wedding. The above covers enough for now. It was kind of shit. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was younger, my brother and I lived very close to our paternal grandmother, as did most of our immediate and extended family who had a relatively large house. We would often spend nights on weekends and stay for a few odd days during the summer with our other young relatives. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I blocked most of this experience out of my memory until listening to your show triggered something. But I was probably around 10 or 11 while my brother was 9 to 10, as I remember going home to my maternal grandmother. She died when I was 12. We had been staying over with a few of our older cousins who were around 13 or 14. When it was time for bed, we all went up to our shared sleepover room in the upper floor. I was the only girl. Three of my male cousins told my brother they would show him something cool about girls. Uh, I'm going to leave out the graphic details, um, but uh, she was grabbed and held, and um, as you can imagine what happens. I was younger and much too physically weak to stop him when he started to rape me. After he was done, I just laid there crying and defeated as the other cousins took their turns, and then my brother followed, all while my grandmother was downstairs. My brother, brother made a habit of sneaking into my room at night after this. You can imagine where that went. I understand my brother was probably fucked up by my cousins. I've talked to and forgiven him, but I can never forgive my cousin who instigated this entire event. He was the golden child to my aunt and grandma. He could do no wrong. He was amazing in every way. He died in a car crash last Halloween, and now every day I see them I have to see the memorial lockets they wear with his picture. My rapist, quote, a perfect angel God took too soon, unquote. I can't tell them what happened, how their golden child raped and convinced three others to rape his younger cousin, because in my conservative religious family, speaking ill of the dead is tantamount to blasphemy. He and I were also co-workers for three years. His mother, my aunt, uh, was our supervisor. Our grandmother was our boss, and I still work for them, and I see them every week. I'm either a fucking idiot or I'm punishing myself for not fighting back, and I can't figure out which. All I know is when I see him, I want to be dead. She's been physically and emotionally abused, as you can imagine. My parents were not really in the picture until I was 12. I was raised by my maternal grandmother who literally lived next door to them. I saw them every other day for a few hours, and when I did, it was always them visiting grandma, not visiting their kid. When she died, I moved in with them, and it was like being adopted by neighbors who didn't actually know me. They tried to treat me the same as, as my brother, but that was a terrible idea. 
He was a loud extrovert with anger issues, and I was a quiet introvert who cried easily. They yelled at me for being too quiet, for crying, for not having friends, for not going out by myself. Most of my abuse was simply emotional abuse and neglect, but it did get physical a few times. There are two incidents that really stick out to me. I was around 14. My dad was very picky about dishes, and it was my job to wash them. Uh, I apparently didn't wash them correctly, and as punishment, he slammed me into the counter and threw the dishes in the sink. My brother ran to my defense by breaking a glass bottle over my dad's head. While they fought, I hid behind the refrigerator of all places and proceeded to have what I believe was a panic attack. I have no idea how long it took them to stop, but I remember my dad pulling me out of my hiding spot by my neck and made me wash the dishes again. My mom putting band-aids on my brother and me crying. He told me, shut up, this wouldn't have happened if you weren't so lazy and did your chores right the first time. The second one was my mother. I was 20, living with parents after college. My grandfather in his early 50s with diabetes uh, and what we now know was early onset dementia was also living with us and had started accusing my mother of stealing from him. I now know she was, but at the time she had convinced me he was an asshole trying to steal from her. I now know she was also guilty of elder abuse, far too much to list here, and got my brother and I to do the same as teenagers, but this time I didn't stand and watch. My mother had grabbed a cup of coffee and tried to hit my grandfather, but ended up hitting me instead when I jumped in front of him. She blamed me for the coffee dripping from the ceiling and tried to kick me out on the street. It lasted an hour before she dragged me back inside to wash the dishes for her. I also don't know if this counts, but after my maternal grandma died, we stopped celebrating my birthday. Instead, since my dad's birthday was within a week of mine, we celebrated his. I just happened to get presents too. My parents claimed it, quote, made more sense to combine them, yet they didn't combine my brother's birthday and Christmas. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, my brother is now a genuinely great person and the only family member to even try to keep in contact when I moved out barring angry reminders to call the other parent for happy birthday wishes. I doubt he even remembers what he did to me, but if he does, I think he is trying to make up for it. He also stuck up for me against my parents and the kids who bullied me in school for being a nerd who was far too invested in books and cartoons into my teenage years. My parents were also very supportive of my creative pursuits, encouraging me to write. It was the only real enthusiasm I got from them when they weren't trying to get me into their own hobbies, which I did enjoy. I'm an, even a history buff, all thanks to my mom's love of uh, Titanic. Uh, we all also played video games together as a group, mostly horror, laughing at each other for being scared and solving puzzles together. It made everything better for a while. Darkest Thoughts I want to tell my grandmother and aunt to fuck off, that their beloved boy was a horrible person, that he was a rapist, that I don't care if he is dead, that God will strike me down, that I am agnostic because I can't believe in a God that has it so, quote, everything happens for a reason, and lets this happen to people every day, that by their logic, there was a reason for me being raped, and that reason was God's will. I want to tell them that when they die, I hope they go to hell and so they can say hi to their angel. But I won't. Darkest Secrets. 
I think I might be autistic. I've taken so many at-home and online tests to see if I could possibly be on the spectrum, so I have validation because I was never tested as a kid. And despite now having two new brothers who show obvious signs of being on the spectrum and a cousin with Asperger's, my parents refuse to admit anything may be wrong or to test them. And they don't diagnose adults who say, hey, I think I'm autistic. Can you waste hours of your time to check? I'm probably just a socially awkward person who never got over living in the mountains far away from other people. Or stupid. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be treated like a servant slash pet. I want to stay home and keep everything clean and cook and make sure everything is perfect and wait for the one who takes care of me to come home and let me relax. To stop thinking. To be able to sit at their feet while they pet me and tell me how good I've been and now I can let go. I want them to take me whenever they want while at home. I want to be a good girl who gets reminded, rewarded with treats and pets for doing good things. I want to lose myself. Writing that makes me feel dirty, like garbage. I hate it. As I've said many, many times uh, on the podcast, we don't choose what turns us on, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with what you're fantasizing about. What's wrong is the shit that happened to you as a kid and the scars that it's left, and man, this is a heavy survey, and Anyway, continuing. Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Boyfriend, I love you. Please keep supporting me. I love that you convince me to hang out with your friends, that you take me to nerd conventions, that you buy me Transformers, even if you have no idea who Chrome Dome and Rewind are, that you make sure I don't drink the jungle juice past cup number one because you know I hate the hangover. That when I get quiet and try to cry, you bug me and hold me and scratch my head until I open up and then listen to me when I don't make any sense. I don't deserve you, but you are here anyway. You deserve to know what happened to me. And you do deserve him. You do deserve him. What if anything you wish for, for my brain to shut up? I don't need to be reminded uh, of that thing that happened 14 years ago that I can't change. I don't need to think my house will burn down every time I go outside. I don't need this. Have you shared these things with others? No. Nope. 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 No. How do you feel after writing these things down like a garbage person who needs to suck it up? Other people went through worse and are doing better than me, faster than me. I'm an idiot. Man, that mean voice is so ingrained in your head. And you are not a garbage person. And one of the most toxic lies in society is that sucking it up instead of processing it is the answer. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? For fuck's sake, don't work for your family, especially not if your family is your abuser's family. It is not nearly as good as you are convincing yourself it will be. Work for anyone 
else. The mental and emotional trauma isn't worth it. Wow. Thank you for that. Just fuck. I really, really hope you find someone or people to open up to and to, and to start to to try to heal because that stuff's not going to go away on its own and you deserve to experience the freedom of moments of not only lack of self-criticism but actually self-love. It's it's worth it. It's worth the pain of therapy, the worth the pain of support groups because all the shedding, all of those tears and those ideas is so cathartic and feeling that weight lift is is so empowering and life affirming and finally this is a happy happy moment filled out by an agender person who refers to themselves as autumn and i just love this one so many things make me happy here is a list of happy moments in one day cycling to work on a misty morning along the creek seeing sunbeams through the fog seeing that corgi again Red brick factory buildings reflecting the canal, sun dancing on their walls. Palm trees on the roof terrace despite cold northern summer. Working with tiny 3D furniture models at work while listening to Metal Pod. Discovering new songs. The helplessly funny cashier at a lunch cafe. Finally seeing familiar faces of people from a neighboring office because fire alarm practice rushed us all outside. Drawing with freshly bought pens. Trying a new technique that works so well. Seeing a Samoyed dog playing with a tiny Samoyed puppy. Going on a small after-work adventure with my partner. Cycling on a lake shore. Watching the huge moon rise above the city. Beautiful houses with tall windows and slanted roofs. Glowing in the twilight scattered around the pine forest. Finding remains of an ancient settlement touching the stones placed by people 1,700 years ago that are still there, steel-colored waves licking steel-colored rocks, cycling home, realizing every stone of pavement, every house, trash bin, and light pole was placed by human hands, passing an old wooden house with tall corner windows, getting a glimpse of an old person reading in an armchair in a room filled with books and warm light of a reading lamp, Watering my balcony garden, the smell of the tomatoes leave on my fingers, same as in my grandmother's greenhouse. Listening to my partner preparing a speech at his political party's conference, using two language, both foreign to us, speaking so openly and bravely about what they believe in. And me being able to express myself better and better every day in the language of my home country by choice cooking dinner and drinking Japanese rice tea, a gift from someone I would love to be friends with, making plans for the weekend trip with friends, and dreaming of finding my little community in this still new country. First of all, I want to know where you live, how I can get there, I know I'd have to learn a new language, fuck that. I'd rather stay in the burning fires of Los Angeles. Now, where where you 
I'm going to guess it's Finland or Sweden or Norway. Maybe Iceland? Anyway, thank you for that. That was amazing. Amazing. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never forget 9-11. I just wanted to throw that in there. You thought I was going to say never forget you're not alone, but <laughs> not alone, but... I actually went to play hockey the other day, and every time you go in there, you have to fill out a, a consent form, a waiver, and you have to put the date on it. And I went there, and I said, uh, what's today's date? And the guy looks at me, and he goes, 9-11. It's just like, oh, fuck. I did forget. Anyways, you are not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.